0: One of the main reasons that we do this podcast, well, I guess outside of the reason that we just kind of like to do it, I guess one of the main academic reasons why we do this podcast is because, I mean, man, it really is hard to keep up with stuff, right? I mean, things are always changing. There's so much data out there. And that's exactly true for the world of the vaginal microbiome. Um, and so right away, if you hear that, you're like, what? The vaginal microbiome? It's like bacilli. It's kind of boring. Nothing really happens down there. Uh, totally not true. You see, back in September the 7th, 2019, we did an episode called Desquamative Inflammatory Vaginitis, all right? Desquamative Inflammatory Vaginitis, or D-I-V. Basically, that's a severe form of something called aerobic vaginitis. And there's a lot of different bacteria that can cause that, all right? So this is the counterpart, this is the rebuttal to anaerobic vaginitis, or BV. Yeah, so we've got Gardnerella on one side, And then we've got this other aerobic facultative bacteria, on the other hand, that can also produce symptoms. Or so we thought. Now, it's very complicated. I'm going to get into this, but we're going to make it super easy. So as point of reference, if you want to, I guess you could go back to September the 7th, 2019 and listen to that episode. But we're now going to build on that because, yes, that information is still valid. It's not obsolete, I promise you. But we now know something super, super interesting about what's called aerobic vaginitis. And there's a lot of different bacteria that can do that. One of them is GBS. Like, no, not having it. Nope, nope. You can't convince me of that. GBS is a normal bacteria. It lives in the vagina as a colonizer. It's just colonization. It's not pathogenic. Well, if it's not pathogenic, why do we give intrapartum prophylaxis for it to prevent it going to the child and causing sepsis? Yes, GBS can be pathogenic. However, it's deeper than that when we talk about its role and the role of the other bacteria that are potentially involved with aerobic vaginitis. Because here's the shocker, guys, and here is the spoiler they may be a secondary sign, not the first cause, but a secondary sign of the condition. In other words, they just may be going along for the ride, but not necessarily causing it. Ooh, lots to cover, right? So we're gonna talk about the history of aerobic vaginitis uh, or otherwise known as desquamative inflammatory vaginitis. Some people consider that only a severe form. The truth is it's all in the spectrum. It's all pretty much the same issues that uh, when it's milder, it's just called AV, aerobic vaginitis. And when it's really severe, Then it's considered D-I-V, which is desquamative inflammatory vaginitis. But we know a lot more about this. Super controversial, but it's not so controversial anymore because this made its way into some big, big societies and some big guidelines as recent as March 2023. Remember, guys, as point of reference, we're doing this in June 2023. Ooh what are we talking about? Which society? No, it's not ACOG. It's something else and on a more international level. All right, that's a lot of the teaser. That's a lot of the intro. Let's cover can GBS be a vaginal pathogen? Can GBS call vaginitis? Is there something called aerobic vaginitis? And the answer is pretty complex. So we're going to cover that in this episode. medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. Okay, before we get into this episode, this thing happened again, all right? I think I said it in the last episode, how did this happen, guys? I mean, what the heck is going on? How did this work? Are you all talking to each other in different parts of the country or what? Let me explain. About four weeks ago, I got my first message uh, through the Facebook page saying, Hey, Dr. Choppa, what's this thing about uh, aerobic vaginitis? Is it real or not? Because there's a lot of controversy in the data. Okay, and I said, yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll put down the list. Okay, two weeks ago, I get my second totally different person uh, message going. Hey, Dr. Chapa, is GBS a pathogen in the vagina? Can is that true? Can that be a thing? Because one of my coworkers said yes, and another one said absolutely not. You're finding that on culture because you're finding colonization. Okay, so that was that. And I said, ooh, that's lots to cover there. Don't want to give you a reply very quickly. So let me put a pin in that and then we'll put that on a podcast. Well, no joke, just last week, I received the third similar question about GBS as a pathogen, GBS uh, and its role in aerobic vaginitis. See, I told you, comes in three. And yes, all three were different people that were in different areas. Weird, right? How do you explain that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's totally coincidence. I don't know. But the short of it is, I'm like, man, there's this is super interesting. And the answer used to be super controversial. But when I give you this data, next time somebody tells you, oh, aerobic vaginitis, pff, that's not a thing, man. That's, that's somebody told somebody that so that they could sell some product so they can test for it. By the way, this episode is not industry sponsored by anybody. Uh, but then you can answer and go, actually, um, it's, it may not be that bogus after all, because it is recognized by the International Society for the Study of Vulval Vaginal Disease. And of course, their next thing will be, wait, there's a society for that? <laughs> yeah, there is. It's actually been around since the 1970s. So first let me get into what this International Society for the Study of Vulval Vaginal Disease is, because... This whole condition of DIV, desquamative inflammatory vaginitis, slash aerobic vaginitis AV, uh, has always been controversial. And one of the main reasons it's controversial is, number one, it has to be a diagnosis of exclusion. Everybody take that home, right? So don't go tomorrow and... Uh, diagnose everybody with AV because it it is real, but it's a diagnosis of exclusion. We've got to exclude other things that we're going to discuss, and you already know what they are, right? Gonorrhea, uh, chlamydia, uh, BV, yeast, trick. We've got to hit the major ones. And then when we've done that, and then possibly even accounted for ureaplasma, mycoplasma, because we know that those can cause vaginitis symptoms as well, especially in the younger, uh, sexually active, reproductive age population, and all that's negative and we're like, hmm, I think you've got maybe aerobic vaginitis, especially if they meet the clinical criteria. We're going to talk about all that. And we kind of touched on that back in 2019, but we're going to do it now again, so you don't have to go back to that episode, or you can listen to that episode after this one uh, and kind of see how they balance each other out, okay? So yes, it is real. Uh, but despite that, it's it's always been controversial because it's a diagnosis of exclusion, Number two, there's not one uniform diagnostic criteria, okay? So if you're doing BV, you can, okay, fine. You can do microscopy, then you can do Amsel's criteria, right? Three out of four, I get that. If you can do gram stain, which I don't know if anybody does anymore, then you can use Nugent's criteria, fine. Or you're just going to send it off for like an Affirm card. Okay, that's all valid. But there isn't a set criteria for aerobic vaginitis, so if your thought is, well, 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 then if there's no set criteria, how am I supposed to diagnose that? Well, there's guidelines, and those are guidelines that are endorsed by the International Society for the Study of Vulval Vaginal Disease. So it's legit, okay? This is not my opinion. So these are guidelines that that you can use to go, I, I, I think this is likely what we're going to do or we're going to treat it, all right? So controversial because, number one, definitely diagnosis of exclusion. Second, even though there's no formal set, there's guidelines to help you make the diagnosis. Uh, for this. And then the third is we don't have a a front tier, a top tier uh, medical management for this. Here's what you do and it'll go away. There's great history of medications that have been used for this, great historical evidence that have worked. Um, but we're also going to explain why antibiotics are probably secondary to this. Huh? Secondary, right? So you are thinking, wait a minute, if this is an overgrowth of GBS uh, as our prototypical infection here as a facultative aerobe, why is it not uh, antibiotics? Well, because, again, remember what we said in the intro, these are likely not causative. These are usually markers of something else. And that something else is likely the ideology, which is uh, a, a abrupt decrease in lactobacilli. Okay, so the police go away in the neighborhood, boom, and then all the opportunistic uh, people come out and like, woohoo, it's Ah, let's go nuts. So that's likely the etiology. Something happens to the bacteria that keep things in check in the vagina, the normal microbiota, okay? Meaning, the, of course, the hydrogen peroxide-producing lactobacilli. Uh, and then these other bacteria arise, E. coli, uh, enterococcus, GBS, group A strep. These are the facultative aerobic bacteria that have been linked to this condition, So similar to BV on the anaerobic side, remember that BV isn't just Gardnerella vaginosis. There's a lot of different bacteria that can go into that that are facultative anaerobes. Well, same thing on this other side of the coin for the aerobic vaginitis. There's a list of different bacteria that have been associated with this, and GBS is one of them. So yes, the idea is GBS is totally normal as part of the vaginal microbiome, but given an opportunity may overpopulate but at that point, that's not causing the symptoms because the symptoms actually started before that with a decrease in lactobacilli, okay? And so we're going to go over all of this pathogenesis, but all to say, if you if you check somebody and you suspect this, diagnosis of exclusion, look for the historical markers, make sure nothing else is going on, and then we're going to go over why culture is not necessary Uh, for this diagnosis, nor is it endorsed. We mentioned this in 2019. Like, well, how am I supposed to find out what it is? Well, it's probably not that vital that you have to find out if it's GBS or something else, because you've got to target what's causing it, okay? See how problematic this is? You have to go back one step and target the inflammation that's causing this dysbiosis, all right. So that's another word that I want to get into the dysbiotic environment. because this is exactly what this is, this is normal bacteria in the vagina that have an opportunity and then they go nuts. All right. So they're not really bad at heart right? I mean, they're really trying their best. (laughs) But give it an opportunity. uh, Mom and dad go to sleep. Boom. Then the party happens. Party. And that's exactly what happens here with aerobic vaginitis. So that's why antibiotics aren't necessarily the first line that can be used in combination or a second line to an anti-inflammatory. The trick is finding out what caused that vaginal inflammation to begin with that dropped the lactobacilli. Man, I'm giving away a lot of my little clinical pearls before we even got into the material, but I can't help myself. Uh, so all this, by the way, we have a little outline whenever we do a podcast. This is just like background stuff. We haven't even gotten to the main stuff. But you see how deep that is? So one of my main points I wanted to do here in the background is that, well, number one, you can go back to 2019, September the 7th, and listen to that episode, even though we're going to do some of those highlights here. And second, the big take-home message is that according to the International Society for the Study of Bobal Vaginal Disease, or ISSVD, um, yeah, the bacteria may actually be innocent. They're like, hey, I I saw a chance and I overpopulated. And that may not be causative. So for those three Facebook family members who gave a question, can GBS uh, cause vaginitis? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, any bacteria can cause vaginitis if, in, if it overpopulates. Uh, and then no, because the overpopulation, which can be part of the vaginitis, uh, may be a secondary factor. Wow. Okay. Ooh, mind blown. All right. Let's stop there for a minute. Let me talk briefly about the ISSVD, and then we're going to jump in uh, to the data. It's amazing that there really is a society for everything. Um, and this is nothing new. I remember hearing about this from our uh a vulvovaginal clinic when I was a resident at Southwestern. Um, and I'm like, man, there really this is How boring is that? And then, of course, as a, as I developed in my residency and even post residency training, I'm like, this is they, they've got great stuff um, related to vulvovaginal disease, okay? So this International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Disease, or ISSVD, is, is not a, a industry-sponsored. It's a non-profit, and it was founded back in 1970s. actually is a spin-off, if you will, uh, or, or a, a baby i guess of figo okay so that's the international federation of obstetrics and gynecology or figo as in the figo stages of cancer okay so figo uh did y'all know that figo by the way is in the headquarters is in new york it's pretty cool i've actually been there it's an amazing thing i this was like 10 years ago it should still be in new york i guess i should have looked that up but figo used to have a headquarter in new york city uh, and this isn't just OBGYNs, okay? I mean, this is actually made up of a, of a very nice and balanced multidisciplinary group of professionals, okay? All thought leaders from dermatologists, there's obviously OBGYNs, there is uh, family practitioners, there's uh, uh, immunologists, because a lot of these things obviously have an immunological basis, uh, and even some physiotherapists are, are part of this team. And they give out guidelines every so often. And their most recent set uh, was just published in March of 2023. Okay? And I, and I love this because there's been all of these things in the data. Uh, and people are so opinionated about this. I don't know why. I take it personal. Like, I've read some editorials are like, GBS is not a pathogen. GBS is a normal microbe. It's fine. If you find that on, on specimen, don't ever treat that. That's That's just an innocent bystander. And and it reads like that, like dude, I mean, chill out. Why why are you so upset about that? And meanwhile, on the other flip of the coin, there's others who are like, oh, it's an absolute pathogen all the time, and you should treat that. And the truth is, um, both are wrong. Yes, GBS is definitely part of the natural microbiome, the normal flora, totally true. But to say it can never be a pathogen is just not right. I mean, we know GBS septicemia occurs. We know that GBS can cause some wound infections. It can even have some joint infections. Uh, It can cause some invasive disease. I mean, look what it does to the newborn. So in the immunocompromised adult, uh, those that have uh, uh, immunosuppression from either um, endogenous things with their system or by medications yeah i mean gbs can be a pathogen but to say also on the other side that gbs is always bad well that's not true either because lactobacilli naturally keep it in check so as always whenever there's strong opinions on other side the truth likely lies in the middle so despite all this controversy of no it's never a pathogen and yes it's always a pathogen. That's exactly what happens with this condition. This is now a recognized entity. It's in the guidelines from the International Society for the Study of Vulval Vaginal Disease. And it was released March 2023. How great is that? I'll put a link to that uh, in our reference sheet because a lot of this has come straight out of that, uh, as well as some other sources, of course. Um, But I love that there is actually a section here that specifically covers DIV and aerobic vaginitis. And you know what? Like 10 years ago, that may not have been uh, because it wasn't included 10 years ago. So uh, again, now that we know that this actually can happen, uh, and its 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 presence in a guideline like this at an international level uh, gives it uh, not only validity, um, but credibility. So don't ever let somebody tell you, I can't believe you believe in aerobic vaginitis. That's just normal. It's not a problem. Just say, well, it's actually chapter seven in the International Society for the Study of Oval Vaginal Disease Guidelines from March 2023. Uh, so what do you say about that? So very important. Isn't that interesting? Again, I didn't have this, obviously, in 2019 because this just came out three months ago. And I never would have predicted that this would have had a whole chapter in these guidelines. But there you go. Medicine moves fast. Before we get into the ISSVD info, look how interesting and controversial this is, okay? And hopefully now that it's made its way into a major guideline, it will be less controversial. But there's actually a group from the UK called Group B Strep Support. Wow. Okay, so I didn't know that we needed Group B Strep Support, but it's a thing. Uh, It's www.gbss.org. Org. uk. So remember, this is not American. This is from the UK. Group B Strep Support. So it's GBSS.org.uk. Okay, somebody thought we needed support for this. Maybe if your child has GBS septicemia, I get that. But it's not just for that. It's broader than that. Now, I don't know when they last updated this, but I'm going to share this with you because I want to tell you what they have here regarding finding GBS. In the vagina on a culture for patients who are symptomatic. Okay, now it, it, I'm a little confused by this. To be honest, I mean I, I'm obviously I'm not in the UK. So if you have somebody if, if part of our podcast family who's listening to this, let me know about the society because the copyright is 2023. All right. So 2023, uh, it happened now. Was it January? Was it February? Was it before March when the International Society released their info? I don't know. But listen to what they say about vaginal symptoms. Okay, so listen to this, quote, we know of no publication that convincingly demonstrates that carrying GBS causes vaginal symptoms. Carrying GBS is not associated with any symptoms. To find out whether you're carrying GBS, you would need to do a test uh, and one that is sensitive enough, like the ECM, which is the gold standard test for detecting GBS carriage. Uh, I don't know what ECM is, but anyway, I'm just reading this straight out of this website from the UK. So listen to what they say, guys. Quote, when GBS is grown from a sample taken from the vagina, this means that the vagina was colonized with GBS when the swab was taken. It does not mean that GBS is the cause of any symptom that prompted the test being done. End quote. Wow. You see that? So again, remember I told you there's like two camps here. So these are like, nope, doesn't mean anything. But the International Society for the Study of Global Vaginal Disease actually would say, well, wait a minute now. Now, there's some truth to that, but it's not all true. Because if you find UBS that's like 4 plus on a culture, well, obviously, that's not just colonization. Colonization is low level. Obviously, they've gone nuts. They've gone berserk here. And it's likely because of the police that's been diminished. So I agree with you. They're likely not the cause of it. However, the fact that they're 4 plus on a culture, uh, when they should be like a 1 plus, uh, means that they are likely a marker of aerobic vaginitis you see that so that's why i mean they are telling it it is correct they're likely not the cause of the symptoms yes that's true but their presence in high volume is definitely a surrogate marker of some kind of vaginal dysbiosis that's going on okay so i would have added that if i was writing this and i was in the uk right but i'm not that was my British, but I'm not. That's not even British, is it? I don't know what that is. Anyway, so the idea I think they just exonate it. There's just no way. It's not related. It's it's not a thing as a pathogen in the vagina, and I think that's that's kind of a disservice because overpopulation of any bacteria uh, obviously is not normal, and in this case, it's probably not the cause of the condition, but a secondary marker. <laughs> All right, let's get back to what this thing actually is and what what it isn't. Well, first of all, this is not in everybody and this should not be your first diagnosis because remember what we said earlier, this is definitely a diagnosis of exclusion, okay? So once you've ruled out the typical pathogens for anybody with uh, irritating vaginal discharge, which includes your typical gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, yeast, and if you suspect things like urea plasma or mycoplasma, then you've got to do specialized tests for that. And you can culture that, or you can send that out for uh, specific DNA uh, probe testing to look for these. And remember that mycoplasma uh, and urea plasma are also, it's possible for them to be colonizers that can overpopulate in the right situation, just like with GBS. And now mycoplasma is a little weird because they are aerobic and they're facultative anaerobic, all right? So you're like, oh, what? They got one foot in each camp? Yeah, they basically do. I mean, they grow better in aerobic environments, uh, but by nature, they're facultative anaerobic microorganism. Go figure. But the idea is once you've ruled out all of the typical pathogens and then these more atypical pathogens like mycoplasma and ureoplasma, um, then you're left with this possibility of aerobic uh, vaginitis. So yes, I mean, in theory, I mean, both mycoplasma and ureoplasma could fall under this category, even though they're facultative anaerobic, they do grow in in aerobic environments as well. So yes, it's still part of the same kind of catch. And it's okay to look for these. It's okay to have a diagnosis, but remember, they may not be causative. they may be a secondary marker. Of, of the original inflammation that caused this dysbiosis to begin with, that decrease in lactobacilli, right? So it's the exact same thing that applies to GBS. These are likely secondary uh, overgrowths with the primary pathology being that inflammation that throws off the lactobacilli. So this isn't just a GBS thing. This is pretty much any facultative uh, aerobic bacteria that lives in the vagina. And we're going to cover those here in just a minute. The first time that D.I.V., Desquamative Inflammatory Vaginitis, was in the literature was back in 1965. How cool is that? 1965. It was actually in the Gray Journal with the lead authors being Gray and Barnes. All right. So in that article, in that manuscript, they described their findings on 478 women who complained of vaginal discharge. And among six of them, the vaginas were reported to be, quote, thin and quite reddened with numerous pus cells, pus cells, what is that? Those are PMNs, right? But that's what they said, pus cells, Uh, and with oval and round parabasal cells in the secretions, end quote. Now, we're going to get into that, but that is still one of the diagnostic criteria is microscopy, and it's not culture, because culture, you could very easily be picking up what the rebuttal. Uh, the argument is against this is that you're picking up colonization. That's why you have to look at other things outside of a culture. So, culture is not how you diagnose aerobic vaginitis or DIV. It's still wet prep. The problem is who does wet prep anymore, right? But it, it is a thing. So if you don't do it, ask your lab if they do it because that is still part of the diagnostic criteria. An increased number of PMNs, an increased number of parabasal cells of the vagina. Like, what the, what, what does that look like? Well, normal epithelial cells, if you think about the typical Clue cell, it's a lot of cytoplasm, right? Irregular shape border, small nucleus, right? And then the typical coccobacillary or salt and pepper cells of a clue cell. Y'all remember that from 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 medical school or nursing school, PA school, that's a typical epithelial cell. But a parabasal cell is actually round. It's a lot smaller than a mature uh, squamous epithelial cell. And uh, the nuclei are are a lot bigger, okay? So think a little bagel uh, with a big filling in the hole, that's the nucleus, and these are not irregularly shaped. So those are parabasal cells, so little circles, big nuclei, and a lot of PMNs, and an absence of... Of clue cells and an absence of a whiff test, you're like, man, something something's weird here. I it could be aerobic vaginitis. So even though we talked about desquamative inflammatory vaginitis, that was the first thing we reported in 1965, this is on a spectrum. So the thought is is that it starts out with aerobic vaginitis and it's most severe form where you really get a lot of excoriations and and a a lot of this uh, weeping kind of vaginal walls, it becomes desquamative inflammatory vaginitis, all right? So yes, basically the same thing, uh, but just one is more severe than the other. But this goes back to 1965. Then this condition of aerobic vaginitis as a milder form of DIV made its way into the literature by Donders. I've read this many, many times. They published this in 2002. And it's a pretty good review uh, of these women who presented with these weird discharge. Those kind of yellow uh, discharge, a lot of inflammation, a lot of irritation, the same thing. They found the exact same thing. A lot of PMNs, a lot of parabasal cells, but no clue cells. And they said, wow, you know what we're finding on this thing? We're finding a lot of GBS. We're finding E. coli and staph aureus and a little bit of, of group A strep. So these are aerobic; hence, aerobic vaginitis that happened in 2002. How interesting is that? All right. So we went from 1965 to 2002, so over 40 years, and now we're like, yeah, this may be actually an overgrowth uh, of of aerobic bacteria. First thought to be causative, we now know it's probably not causative probably more as a secondary finding. Uh, but that's the one push. That's the one thing why some authors and some experts call for culture. It's not really for GBS. You're looking for other weird stuff that could be really bad, like group A strep. Remember that group A strep can cause a form of toxic shock syndrome. So just to be very clear, I have no beef with sending off a vaginal culture for this. None at all. But if you find group B strep, you're like, okay. Cool. It's fine. It's supportive of it, but that's not necessary for diagnosis because remember that it's not just GBS. There's a lot of these aerobic facultative bacteria in the vagina that could cause it. So not finding it doesn't mean they don't have AV. It just possibly means that GBS is not the causative agent in that case, okay? But you are doing it to look for things that are really virulent, like group A strep, that is a pathogen in and of itself, all right? So unlike group B strep, that is part of the natural microbiome, group A strep uh, is not. So group A strep is why you really could do a culture to make sure that, uh, that you're not missing that potential virulent bacteria. And I don't want you to think that, man, I'm just really, you know, taking this hook, line, and sinker because it's whatever the ISSVD says, right? No, no, no. It's not that at all. I mean, I'm not a member of this society. This isn't obviously sponsored by them. I just think they have good info here, and it's an international group of thought leaders, uh, and and it's valid. I mean, I think they have a a good point here. But it's not just them. There's actually a really nice review on this, if you're interested, in their Journal of Lower genital Tract Disease, Okay, and this was out January twenty twenty two, just a year ago. The title is the vaginal microbiome, and it's actually part two. It's called vaginal dysbiotic conditions. It's really good. I'll post the link, of course, uh, in our reference sheet. Uh, but this is a great review. And guess what's in there? Yeah, there's BV in there, of course, uh, and there's a role of of all the different bacteria that go into that, and about biofilms. But you know what else is in there? Exactly what we're talking about here. Desquamative inflammatory vaginitis and aerobic vaginitis. This is in there. It's a great systematic review and meta-analysis. So I'll post this link in our reference list, but it was January 2022 in the Journal of Lower Genital Tract Disease. Aerobic vaginitis, whether it's caused by GBS or E. coli or something else, is characterized by this moderate to severe colonization by facultative aerobic bacteria and a depletion of lactobacilli, all right? This leads to this moderate to severe inflammatory reaction of the vulvo-vaginal mucosa. So what does that look like? Well, it looks exactly what it sounds like. It's this erythematous, kind of punctate little hemorrhages, It's very tender to touch. Which is why these patients also present clinically with dysperunia. See, BV shouldn't really give you dysperunia. BV gives you that right musky, fishy discharge that's uh, kind of tannish, yellowish, uh, brown sometimes, and it doesn't really cause tenderness to touch the vagina. So if you think that, and again, it's not yeast, it's not BV, think be thinking about this condition. Uh, because it, it it is a real entity. So think inflammatory uh and BV, but not with anaerobic bacteria, but with aerobic bacteria. All right, podcast family. We're gonna do diagnosis and treatment here in a minute. But listen to what the ISSVD says about the origin of this, okay? Because honestly, for about two decades we had it wrong. We thought, oh, overgrowth of GBS, obviously, too much bacteria is bad. That's overpopulating, it's overtaking, it's a riot, it's it's getting rid of the lactobacilli uh, and that's why you get this condition. It's actually the reverse, all right? Something happens to the vaginal microbiota where the lactobacilli, the hydrogen peroxide producing lactobacilli now get taken down and so then these things overpopulate as a secondary marker, as a secondary issue, but they probably are not that causative. They're just going along for the ride. As the ISSVD states, quote, it is postulated and seems to be most evidence-based that this happens due to a systemic inflammatory condition that produces vaginal inflammation, which results in abnormal vaginal microbiota rather than the opposite. All right, so let's stop there for a minute. So it's not that the overgrowth of bacteria causes the dysbiosis is that there's dysbiosis and then that causes the abnormal bacteria rise. DIV is frequently a chronic condition, the ISSVD continues, and it states, with most women reporting symptoms for more than a year and requiring treatment for a long period of time, and some of these women are treated for recurrent bacterial vaginosis. So here's the catch. And yet another clinical pearl. Yes, recurrent BV totally happens. We know that. Same thing with yeast. But don't always go to that uh, as your quick, you know, go-to diagnosis. Oh, I, yeah, I diagnosed you with BV two months ago. You have discharge again. That's totally the same thing. I'm going to get you treated. First of all, those shouldn't be treated by telemedicine. ACOG says they need to be brought in because symptoms are very nonspecific. I've covered that in the past, right? You've got to see them. I know it sucks to take time out, but we got to get this right. Because taking antibiotics for the wrong thing uh, is not only bad for you, but it messes up with your GI microbiome, okay? So you got to get this right. And then ask these other questions. By the way, does it hurt when you have sex? Does it hurt if you masturbate? When you put something in the vagina, does that hurt? Because it's so inflamed, and that's not not likely? Is it uh, different than before? Is there a musty smell or not? Because if there isn't, uh, that's very characteristic of BV, but it is not associated with AV. All right, so that weird fishy musty uh, scent is anaerobic bacteria, not aerobic bacteria. So that's a clinical pearl that is typically absent with AV. As we move on, let me read you the signs and symptoms from the ISSVD Uh, latest edition. Okay, let me just read it straight from their monograph uh, so that we can do this quickly. Quote, many cases of AV or DIV are asymptomatic, especially in mild forms. When symptomatic, the most characteristic clinical manifestation is an intense inflammatory reaction of the vaginal mucosa. This results in remarkable tenderness, dyspareunia, stinging and burning. Itching may also be present in some cases. Vaginal and cervical erythema and submucosal petechiae can be noted, and in most severe cases, the vestibule may be involved. The vaginal discharge is purulent, sometimes copious. It can be green or yellow, and it can be stained with small amounts of blood. End quote. Oh, boy, this is getting pretty long. Let's start wrapping this up. The diagnosis of this, again, is based on symptoms, on the ability to rule out other pathogens, and it's based on wet prep. If you don't do that, man, I guess we got to go back to it by our microscope and take a look at the wet wet mount because this is a thing here. Or see if your lab does it and tell them what you're looking for. You're looking for specifically a reduction in lactobacilli. You're looking for small rods or cocci that that could be in chains. Remember, there's things like group A strep or group B strep. And you're looking for a lot of PMNs and an increased number of parabasal epithelial cells, right? Those little circular cells with a big nuclei. And there's two big easy things to figure out here, okay? There's an elevated pH, so you can do that with a litmus uh, paper, and a negative WIF test. Those are the diagnostic clinical criteria And it does not involve culture because culture, then you're left with, well, is that really a colonization or is it causative or is it a secondary marker? So if you do a culture and you find group A strep, you got to treat that one specifically because that's potentially virulent and bad. And if you find group B strep, okay, great. That's possibly that's supportive of aerobic vaginitis. But if it's negative for group B strep, it doesn't mean that it's not AV because there's a whole list of other things that it could be, okay? As we get ready to end this episode, we have to talk about treatment, of course. And I have to say, off the bat, of course, there's no randomized clinical trials or top-tier, line-one medication that's approved for this. And how can it when it's a whole group of different bacteria that can cause this that are facultative aerobes? However, knowing that the root cause of this is likely this inflammatory milieu that throws off the lactobacilli and then is the overgrowth of the other bacteria, the ISSVD states that the first line option should include an anti-inflammatory medication like uh, hydrocortisone, a mild steroid, to bring down that down that inflammation, either as solo medication or with the use of clindamycin. And the reason it's clinda is that way isn't clinda for anaerobes? Well, well, hold on, clinda also has a very potent anti-inflammatory effect. Remember, that's why Clinda is one of the medications used for uh, cystic acne because it takes away the inflammation. So Clinda and hydrocortisone, because of their dual anti-inflammatory effect that is synergistic, is what the ISSVD um, endorses uh, as a first-line option for this, even though there's no RCTs, uh, to really guide that management. Another good reason why you don't want to treat these as just recurrent BV without an exam is because flagell does nothing for this. We covered this in our 2019 episode. Uh, Flagell won't work. I mean, remember that that's specifically targeted anaerobic species. These are aerobic. So good luck with that. It's just not going to work. So if you suspect this, do hydrocortisone. Uh, with or without clinda, I do both. When in the appropriate patient, when I think this is going on, I treat them with both because I think they, they it's definitely synergistic. And in postmenopausal women or perimenopausal women that are slightly hypoestrogenemic, where uh, where this can uh, uh, affect patients by their age distribution, then remember that adding topical estrogen, uh, because estrogen also has a mild anti-inflammatory ability here, is also a good option. So if they're perimenopausal and definitely postmenopausal, rule out other causes, make sure it's not some lichen planus or some other erosive vulvar disease, and consider vaginal estrogen because that also helps support a natural, uh, more healthy vaginal microbiome. And lastly, if you think about probiotics or prebiotics, that, hey, if this thing is a deficiency in in uh, lactobacilli, let's just give all these patients probiotics or, you know, lactobacilli supplementation. I mean, that sounds great, and there's a lot of theoretical uh, uh, truth to that, but... As of right now, as of March 2023, when these guidelines came out and we're taping this in June 2023, quote, data showing benefit for pro or prebiotics is scarce. In a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, Hexo et al. demonstrated that supplementation of standard antibiotic therapy with oral probiotics lengthened remissions in patients with recurrent symptoms and improved clinical and microbiological parameters. However, more evidence is needed. So, yeah, it's not bad. It's not going to hurt anybody. I think it's fine. It could potentially have a role. but And even though there is a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that said that they had longer symptom-free intervals, that's just one RCT and it would be great to have additional data. We just don't have it here. So the short answer is try steroids with or without Clinda. In the appropriate patient, try estrogen. Uh, and if you, th- consider, if you think it's a good idea, then probiotics is something else that can be added. And podcast family, as we get ready to close out this episode, a quick word about other comorbidities with this condition. Just like with BV, with anaerobic vaginitis, anything that disrupts the the homeostatic control of the vagina, right, leading to this dysbiosis, it is an increased risk for other STIs. I mean, if the lactobacilli aren't there, which is the common factor, guys, for both anaerobic or aerobic vaginitis, then it Increases the chance of gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV transmission. There's been some reports linking aerobic vaginitis uh, to cervical dysplasia because of HPV persistence. The idea is we need good, healthy vaginal microbiomes and lactobacilli to keep. Overgrowth of anaerobic bacteria and growth of aerobic bacteria away. That's the take home message here, guys. Anytime the lactobacilli drop because of some kind of background inflammatory response or host immune response to whatever, then these bacterial populations can overpopulate, not necessarily as a, as a causative condition, but potentially as a secondary marker. That's definitely true for the aerobic side. The anaerobic side, it's probably the bacteria that's messing stuff up, but it all started with a lactobacilli drop. All right, we have covered a lot. So if you want to go back to September the 7th, 2019 to get that background info, I think it's fine. It's very similar to this, but except now we know a lot more in depth uh, about the condition. And I think it'd be a nice uh, supplement to this episode, but this one's long enough. So is aerobic vaginitis a thing? Well, that actually depends on who you read. And if you read the international guidelines, then yes, it is a thing. And can GBS cause this? We'll likely know, but overgrowth of GBS can be a surrogate marker of a dysbiotic vaginal environment. Ooh, that should be a bumper sticker, huh? How's your vaginal homeostatic environment? Oh, that's weird. Let's not do that. All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you. (laughs) We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.